Hey everyone, welcome back to the Sales Leadership Foundations podcast. I'm your host, Ray Green, and if you're in a sales or revenue leadership role, you're in the right place. On this podcast, we explore the various things it takes to build a high-performance sales organization. We talk strategy, tactics, culture, leadership, and maybe most importantly, self-leadership. You'll hear from me and the lessons that I learned on my own journey from sales rep to CEO, as well as other guests and experts, including some of the members of our own Sales Leadership Foundations Forum and Mastermind community. Check out rayjgreen.com for more information about me and forum.rayjgreen.com for more information about the community. Thanks for listening. Now let's dive into why you're here today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Really excited to have Justin Welsh on the show today. Justin's a former executive operator turned SaaS advisor, investor, and creator. He spent five years growing Patient Pop from its first dollar in revenue to over 50 million in ARR. And he now brings that expertise to a small group of early stage SaaS companies. He's cultivated an incredibly strong brand and presence on social media, especially LinkedIn, and which he's used to, to launch a couple of very successful courses, including the LinkedIn playbook which helped me launch my own LinkedIn strategy. He has a great solopreneur venture going too. So we'll talk to him about leading sales teams, launching a personal brand, designing a lifestyle that you want, and a lot more. So without further ado, let's dive in. All right. Welcome to the show, Justin. Ray, it's great to be here, man. It's, uh, it's exciting to chat with you. Hope all is well in your world uh, down in Mexico. I have, I have no complaints in Baja, especially this time of year. Our winters are nice. There's a lot of topics, like fun topics that I want to talk to you about today, but you know, we, we'll talk personal branding, some solopreneurship, but I want to, you know, for the audience, I want to set the stage and, you know, for anyone that kind of doesn't know your background and do you mind just sharing your path into, into senior management, into sales leadership? Like what's the, what's the Justin Welsh story from like in, from sales into the C-suite? Sure. You know, I started in sales in 03. I graduated from, um, from college in 03 and got a job in pharmaceutical sales, which is what my dad did for almost 50 years. And we had a you know, pretty nice house and a couple of cars. And so I thought this had to be the be all end all, right? I was going to live in Ohio, Cleveland the rest of my life and kind of live the same life as my parents. And the thing that happened is I just wasn't very good at it. I got a pharmaceutical job. Um, I got fired. I got a second one. I got fired at my second job, and then I I had to actually go backwards in my career and became an associate at a, a medical device company, which I ultimately got fired from as well. And so, uh, at 28, I had three firings, no sales, no quota attainment under my belt, and I put a relatively exaggerated resume, which I think all of ours are, up on Monster.com back in 2009, and I got a call from a company called Zocdoc, which was a nine-person startup in New York City. And they were hiring their second salesperson. And so I applied. I went to the interview and, and I was really prepared. I, had, I was really good interviewer and not a great employee at that point in time. And I was really prepared for the interview. And I, I did a good job and I got the job. And something really like cool happened when, when I got that job, which was I moved to New York City. So for the very first time as an adult, I'm in this city that has a tremendous amount of energy. I'm working with some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. I'm repping a product that I completely believe in. And like I just happen to be maturing at the same time. And the intersection of those four things did something really cool. And I went out and made a sale my very first day and spent the next five years of that company getting promoted multiple times. Whole mindset shift for me. 
So five years at ZocDoc. And then after that, I got really poached by a, a small six-person company called PatientPop to be their VP of sales. And so after you know, kind of stinking the joint up for six years as a bad salesperson, I really turned it around and became a different person. And um, they took a chance on me and spent almost five years at PatientPop, grew the business from its very first dollar of revenue uh, up to over 50 million in recurring. In August of 2019, I stepped down and went on my journey of solopreneurship. And I've been working for myself for the last 18 months. That's awesome. When you, so when that happened, they, and they poached you, what were the, I mean, were there, were there certain things that you evaluated? So if somebody's, you know, if somebody's thinking about switching and they're on that trajectory, you know, it sounds like you had, you'd started to, to get some wins. What did you evaluate when you made that change for yourself? It was a risk reward evaluation. So um, at ZocDoc, there was a different culture there. And it was an, a culture I loved. But if you looked across the senior leadership team, what you recognized was commonalities that I didn't have. So most of the people in leadership roles were came from some of those big consultant firms, McKinsey, Bain, because that's where the, the co-CEOs came from. Most of them had an Ivy League degree, Stanford, Harvard, you know, a prestigious university. I'm a public school guy. I've never worked at a big consulting firm. And so to me, I just saw that and said, I don't think I fit in up amongst those, those folks. And when Patient Pop reached out to me, I thought to myself, here's an opportunity to take a risk to go take my very first executive role in what is the risk? I looked at the price point. I looked at the velocity. I looked at the vertical. They all matched exactly what I had been doing at ZocDoc. And I said, if I'm going to take a risk here, this is the least risky risk of, for a first-time executive with the highest upside in potential. And so to me, given the fact that it was so similar to my previous roles, it just made a lot of sense. Makes sense. When you were among the evaluations, or did you, you mentioned culture. What's a healthy culture for, for you? Or how did you evaluate culture when you, were, when you were making that switch? Yeah. To me, culture revolves around autonomy and, and focus. And so if you go into an organization and they've got mission, vision, and values that, you, you can, that really speak to you, that really get you excited, then you're going to thrive. You have to, you have, to have that in a startup. If you don't believe in the mission, the vision, or the values, the opportunity for you to be successful is significantly decreased. And if you look around at the folks who are in there, do they all believe in that as well? And are they working autonomously? Meaning, do you have a high level, high quality of individual working at the company who can take direction one time and go out and accomplish things? And when I went and I interviewed with Patient Pop, what I saw was people off in different rooms, just heads down, working on projects. There wasn't a lot of meetings. It was a really autonomous place. And so to me, early on, that spoke to me. And because I believed in the mission of what they were doing, which was really democratizing access to healthcare providers, it was a, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, the autonomy, and it actually it plays into, I mean, what you do now, I mean, solopreneur, so autonomy is probably really, really high up there on your, on your, on your own personal values, I imagine. Yeah, autonomy is a superpower. Like if you give someone autonomy, their IQ doubles overnight. It's <laughs> incredible. Most people, if you micromanage them, will respond in turn. They will want to be micromanaged. They will ask you for everything. They will ask you how to do everything. Give someone autonomy and watch their intelligence double overnight. It's pretty amazing how that happens. Interesting. I've never heard that before. I love that. That's saying, why do you, 
why does that happen? What do you think happens when you when you give somebody that freedom and that autonomy to that that doubles their IQ? Yeah, I think it puts people into a position where they have to be they have to be creative. I'll tell you something. Like there are two different ways to teach people things. You can either teach them step by step or you can allow them to learn it on their own. And I've always been an advocate for the latter with a sprinkling of the former, right? So the way that I think about it is give people enough to self-discover and as they start to self-discover the answer, they will not only remember it, but they will learn how they self-discovered. That to me is a skill in and of itself is allowing yourself to learn things on your own without being handed them. So to me, when you teach people to be autonomous, when you say, hey, here's the outcome that I want you to have, now go figure it out, you got to get creative. And the first time they figure something else, something out on their own, they're going to want to do it again. And that was the story of my life at ZocDoc. They gave me all these interesting projects and didn't really tell me how to find the answer. And as I did it, I became known as like the fix-it guy, the guy who like, you had a strange problem, you couldn't figure it out, toss it on Justin's plate and he'll fix it. Talk about a cool skill set to have, like a very mm-hmm. valuable skill set as you get promoted through the ranks in different companies. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. I, As you said that, I thought I was with the US Chamber for like 16 years. But when I look back at the, the trajectory and the moves up, it was very, it was a lot of, hey, can you go fix this? And then senior management getting out of the way and just letting you entrepreneurially, however you want to frame it, get the answer, but you, you own the outcome. You know? So you take a, a vested interest in that. It's a great point. What do you, as you were kind of in your trajectory into to senior management, you know, I, I know you have a, a, you know, a good network of a lot of sales leaders and managers and, and salespeople. If somebody's asking you, hey, what, what can I do to change my trajectory? Like I'm feeling flat and I want to move into the VP rank or I want to move into the C-suite. And I'm, you know, how do you, what kind of advice do you give somebody to, to take ownership of their own career trajectory? Tackle audacious goals without permission. So essentially, if you look around in your business, there are a million things that are broken in every startup company, right? Processes, systems, softwares. There are so many things that are broken that I couldn't get to, that my directors couldn't get to, that my managers couldn't get to. A really great employee who wants to put themselves on a leadership trajectory looks at a broken situation and says, I'm going to go fix that without asking permission. And then they go and they fix it. They change the outcome of something in your business. And they come back to you or their boss and say, I didn't ask for permission to do this, but I found a way to 3x this or 2x this or decrease the cost of this. When employees just take on responsibility like that, you have an army of autonomous, creative, solutions-oriented professionals. That's when startup businesses, in my opinion, start to grow and thrive. And when I look back at the two businesses I worked for, Patient Pop and ZocDoc, they were full of people who are in individual contributor roles or manager roles who are today CEOs, COOs, VPs. It was a, you know, a farm system of incredible talent. And that's because that's the culture that we had in those businesses. And if you were if you're CEO of a startup right now and you wanna and you wanna create that culture, are any advice to to that owner, to that CEO on on how to do that? Yeah. Hire people who can show you some sort of entrepreneurial spirit in their past. Now, obviously, and and I'm painting with a broad brush here, but the younger that you are, the more difficult it will be to show historical entrepreneurship. I know that's not necessarily true with some of 
Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, but that's not who we're talking about, right? So I'll give you an example. When I was hiring for my first sales rep in San Francisco at ZocDoc, I came across a guy with very little sales experience, but he had been running a traveling basketball camp that he and his brother put together. And they were also flipping nursing homes. And it's like two really interesting <laughs> entrepreneurial things that didn't relate at all to what I needed him to do. But I was like, if I hire this guy, I'm pretty sure he's going to figure out how to go make sales. And his name was Josh Angelus. He did. He ended up becoming a VP of sales. Like I remember um, going in and interviewing a young girl who would become an SDR in my organization. And she had created uh, an entrepreneur's club at her college. That in and of itself is entrepreneurial. And the, the whole topic was obviously focused on entrepreneurship as well. So that was helpful. But I just look for little things in people's past. And I would advocate that CEOs do as well that say autonomy is important to them. Creation is important to them because that's going to be really helpful in the early days of your business. Do you think there's value in, you know, you talked a little bit earlier about the, the mission and, the, and the, the vision and the values. Is that baked into that type of stuff formally, or is it just a nature of this is the way the business runs and it just organically, once you start that avalanche, it just kind of continues its, itself? I think it starts organically, right? So you know, I think it starts intentionally. Let me say that. If I look back at ZocDoc, there's two things they did really well. The first thing that they did really well is they had an incredible mission. Rewind to 2009, way before you know everyone was booking restaurant tables online and booking everything they do online, it was online doctor's appointments. That was like the first company in that space to do that. To me, I looked at that and said, that's the only way I want to book doctor's appointments moving forward. Then they had this incredible founder story of Cyrus, the CEO and, and founder of the business who ruptured his eardrum when he landed on a plane, couldn't get any healthcare, couldn't get into a primary care doctor. And those two things together made me feel like, man, I don't want that to happen to anyone else. I want to democratize access to healthcare. So I was really into that mission and that mission continued at Patient Pop. And so I think that part of my success was that I truly believed in those things. And if you looked across the ZocDoc roster or the Patient Pop roster, everyone bought into that mission. But more importantly, they, they bought into those values. So I remember ZocDoc had values like, you know, hire better people than yourselves, work hard, speak up. I'm sure they have since changed, but people like wore those like a badge of honor. And when you get everyone rallying around the same values, people work the same way. It's kind of like a cult, but mm -hmm. a good one. And so I enjoyed that type of environment. And, you know, if I ever go back to working for someone else, I wanted to be in that sort of Kool-Aid drinking mentality. I enjoy that. Yep. And it fosters a, I mean, that's, that's where the real, real teamwork kind of sets in. You know, you're, you're wearing the same Jersey. You give a, you actually give a shit about the other person's results. You know, I mean, you're yeah, actual collaboration. I guess kind of on that note, what are, you have a lot of exposure to not just the couple, couple that you've mentioned, but a lot of sales organizations through, you know, through your network and through others. What are some of the, the more common mistakes that you're seeing in, in sales organizations today? Yeah, I would say two common mistakes is just selecting the wrong go-to-market. You know, often I'll start working with a business in my advisory firm and you know, they'll have a really low price point product, 99 bucks a month, 150 bucks a month, and um, they're going pure outbound. And to me, and they're, and they're specialized, SDRs and AEs. And I'm looking at that saying, I don't think these unit economics work very well. 
And, and often there's a high intent type of buyer and they're missing out completely on inbound marketing or digital de- uh, demand generation. And so it starts with just having the right go-to-market and sometimes the companies I work with don't. I think the second thing is measuring the wrong you know, metrics. So oftentimes they're measuring meetings scheduled, leads generated, things like that, which are, you want to measure them, but they're not the right measurements if you really want to get the business right. You really want to isolate and have a tight funnel. You want to understand how things move from MQL to SQL to SAL to win. And you don't just want to know how they move through the funnel conversion rate. You want to know how fast they're going through the funnel. And if you're not measuring those things, it becomes really difficult to isolate and fix. The best organizations can isolate all the different pieces of the customer journey and know trend-wise when things are going well and going poorly. And so those are some things that I, I see companies generally missing. Mm-hmm. Couple follow-ups on that. The so you mentioned the the specialization, the AE SDR, and I've I've seen some good good material lately. In fact, from Scott Lease, you know, he's he's had a couple of posts on this that that are a little critical of the like the separated you know specialized model versus the holistic sales model. Do you have any any opinions on that, or is it is it circumstantial? I think it it depends on a lot of different variables. But I will say this: I, I've read some of the stuff that Scott writes and. You know, generally, the thing that people talk about when they're kind of talking down on that specialized model is, why should I have to talk to an SDR and have this great conversation and then get tossed to another AE and have this different type of conversation? I, I see that often. That is just an outcome of poorly aligned salespeople. So what I try and instill in my sales organizations is something I call one continuous conversation, meaning if a prospect is talking to an SDR, and then they get pushed to an AE. Then they buy the product and get moved to implementation. Then they get implemented and moved to customer success. The conversation that they have with those four different people should feel like they're having a conversation with one person. And that is an outcome of mapping out a really successful, really high touch, really cohesive customer journey. And if you don't do that, then you feel like you're talking to four different people. So when you have high ticket items, and you want expensive people to be closing business, and you want less expensive people to be generating business, I think it makes sense, but you have to have a cohesive customer journey. That's a great answer. Makes a lot of sense. And the other, on the, the second part of that, you had mentioned the, the funnel and having a, like a clean, tight funnel all the way through and understanding the, the right metrics and the velocity of the, of the leads going through. If you were, you know, if you're a CEO and you and you kind of get that conceptually, but you you want to dig in and really evaluate your own your own sales org, what would you recommend to go learn that? You've gotten it from experience and things like that, but if if without that, how would somebody go kind of self audit or, or or DIY this and look to see if they have the the right metrics in place? Yeah, I mean, there's a bunch of different ways. I think one way is you get a great book on it. Some of my favorite books are by Jaco Vandrakuj, who does this um, Winning by Design series. I think it's called SaaS as a Science. I think those are some of the best books on really taking sales and making it scientific because that's what it is. And oftentimes, product or excuse me, founders are product founders, and so they understand design, they understand science, and so his books do a really good job of breaking that down. The other thing you can do is work with a, a coach. I coach founders for a living. That's part of what I do as my business. Bring someone into your organization who has done it before, right? That can either be through a coach or that can be through a great executive hire. 
And so when you make that executive hire in the sales organization, I always recommend that that person should be able to carry a bag. They should be able to sell. They should be able to motivate their troops early on, all that different thing. But there should be a science portion to them. And if they can't walk you through the funnel top to bottom and bottom back up to top, right? How they hit quota, how the team hits quota, how you adjust levers, how you do things to, to reach goals. And they're not a real sales leader yet. And so those are three ways. Educate yourself through books, hire a coach or an executive, or get the right person in, in charge of your team. Good advice. Yeah. And the, I mean, the, you get the right person in there with that science mindset. Like you said, they're, they're constantly challenging their own biases. You know, like, I mean, even if I have opinions, let's set up a funnel and the right KPI so that I can, I can test it. I want to test my own hypothesis and know if I'm wrong, let's adjust, let's pivot as quickly as possible. 100%. We ran a hypothesis-driven sales organization at PatientPop. Now, even when things were going well, we were asking ourselves, what are one, or, one to two things that we can test to see if we can do it better? And so me and my team were always spinning up one, one experiment after another, just testing things and trying to learn. Well, I, I feel like I could talk sales for hours with you, but I, I, I want to get into a couple of other things um, that are you know just from, from following you. And one is, like, I'd love to hear, like, how do you describe what you're doing today? Um, in, in your own words, because you're, you're, it's, a, it's, a it's a hard intro to make, but how do you describe what you're doing? I'm trying to design a more intentional life. You know, the first six years of my career really stunk. I wasn't very good at it. And then the, the, the 10 years after that, I figured out what I was good at. And there are two traits that I have as a person that don't work well together. One is I'm a workaholic. If you put me in front of a computer, I will work for 15 consecutive hours. That's just my nature, especially if I enjoy something. And the second one is that I have a lot of perfect, uh, perfectionistic tendencies. And so when you couple those two things together, it leads to massive burnout. And that's what happened to me in, in 2019. And why I stepped down from my role at, at Patient Pop is I just burned out after working really, really hard, nose to the grindstone for a decade. And so now I am creating a more intentional life. And the way that I think about that is I want to be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And so what I've done is reduce my expenses, move from LA to Nashville. I've opened up multiple streams of income through advising, consulting, coaching, digital products. You know, My wife manages our money, so we've cut out advisor fees. We are making 1% to 2% improvements in all areas of our life. Try and live a better life, spend more time together, take more walks, eat lunch together, do all the things that we didn't get to do over the last 10 years of my life. Was there, so you mentioned the burnout. Did you feel that coming? Like, was that a gradual process or was it, you hit a wall one day and just, and felt it and knew? No, I felt it coming for a while. I knew in mid 2018 that I was burning out. I was up 40 pounds. I was drinking a tremendous amount to cope with the burnout, eating too much, like working too hard, sleeping very little. So I felt that, like I knew that that was coming. I think it all culminated in late 2018. I think it was December 16th. I had a huge, like massive panic attack where 911 had to be called. All the you know EMTs had to come to our house. Like I thought I was dying to be very frank. And that was sort of the wake up call that kind of got me back on the right foot. As much as I didn't like that day, I'm glad it happened because it's transformed the way that I think about my life and my family. 
What did you, if this, if this isn't hopefully not too personal, what was the next day like? So that happens. That, I mean, that's a hell of a wake up call. What do you do the next day? What were the first steps? Yeah, I went and I, um, I ch- there's a couple things. So we committed to walking every day. So we started to walk three miles a day, three times. So we were walking a lot, nine miles a day. I started doing intermittent fasting. Um, so making better choices in the morning. I cut out alcohol for almost 90 consecutive days. I uh, um, uh, started reading, taking some CBD, drinking more tea, doing more relaxing exercises. There were so many different changes that I made the next day because I was scared. I didn't, I didn't want to have that happen again. And that started to play into where I'm at in my life today and the life I'm trying to design and how we're thinking about life. It was a really wild wake-up call. I can imagine. What are the first steps you'd recommend? Like, so if somebody's in in a similar scenario and they're and they're sensing some burnout, there's a there's obviously a a cash and money component. You know, like you can't just you know a lot of like you can't just quit your job and walk away. I mean, sometimes you can. It just depends. What advice would you give somebody that's kind of sensing this is building? And I mean, are those are those the steps that you would recommend to somebody else, or were there certain things that stood out that you would say, here's what the first two three things I, I really recommend you do are. Yeah. The thing that I wish I had done better and that I didn't do was just be really transparent about it to my, my CEO, right? Like instead I just bottled it up and decided that I wouldn't mention it. And I'm sure he could see it, right? I was bloated. My eyes were puffy. I was exhausted. Like I'm sure that he could see that, uh, but I, I didn't open up about it. And I think that had I opened up about it, he may have been helpful. Uh, in fact, I know it would have been helpful. And so I would recommend that people talk openly to other folks about it. And then I think it's a mindset shift. Like for me, I believed at that point in time, thinking back on it, that like I had to do everything, that everything was in my control, and that I could try and do as many things as possible every day. And really, it's like Burrito's principle, right? 80% of what happens in your business comes from 20% of your effort. I wish that I would have instead gone through my calendar and cut out all the things that I was spending time on that weren't impacting production. And so those are two things that I would recommend people do. Talk to their boss, be open and transparent. If your boss has a negative reaction, you're working for the wrong person. And then make some changes in the way that you manage your time and you know how you spend your days. You know, I, when you say go through your calendar and, and cut out everything that, that isn't working, I sometimes, I think, you know, like that is, I, I should start doing that right now anyway. I mean, just proactively. The challenge I have, and I'm, I'm sure others do, is the same mindset that put it on the calendar is hard to also differentiate, you know, because you look at it and you go, well, that one, that does affect production. And so you end up kind of using the same loop that you use to put it on there in the first place. Is there... Have you found an effective way to be more objective about those things that are on your calendar? Yeah. I mean, what I really have done is, and I'm a systematized person, so this probably won't be that surprising, is created a decision matrix, which is, you know, really starts off with, will I enjoy this now in my personal life? Right. And then it moves to like, does this generate income? And if the answer, is I will not enjoy this at all, then it never makes my calendar. If the answer is I will enjoy it, but it doesn't make income, then I have to think through it, right? If it says I, I don't enjoy it and it doesn't make income, it's obviously a no-brainer. 
I try and put it through this matrix where essentially I make a couple of decisions. Yes, no, or outsource. And so that's how I'm starting to think about my life now. And I would recommend that people in leadership roles do that today anyways, right? Even if they're working for a business. I'm talking to a client yesterday who had a sales leader, expensive sales leader, and he was coaching the team like he should be. It's a smaller organization, about six sales employees. But he was also spending his time vetting out a piece of software. Then he was spending his time trying to fix a software issue, working with the developers. And I said to him, based on your hourly rate, I know someone who could do this for half the cost and do it in one day. And so we outsourced that project and took a tremendous amount of work off of his plate and just gave it to an expert. So I think that when we're entrenched in these situations, we forget that we don't know how to do everything. And so if there's a specialist or an expert who does, and you can pay them a, a decent you know, fee, go do that. Get it done more quickly, allow you to focus on things that are more important and move the project along. So that's yeah. how I think about it. We actually, we were doing a, we we're delivering a sales audit yesterday. And at the end of this, we're having a conversation with one of the co-founders and we were talking about this specific support role, which is, you know, maybe, you know, $40,000, $50,000 a year uh, support role. And I said, well, how much? And they were, they were going back and forth on whether they wanted to hire. And I said, well, how much time do you think this would free up? And the, and the co-founder said, I think like 40%, maybe 45% of my time. And I thought, wow. Like the price that I would put to get 40 or 50% of my day back, right? I don't know the price, but I would, you know, I would, that's a, that is a significant amount of your life back. And then it's, and then it puts you in that place where you have the headspace to be more proactive and, and plan and, and be more strategic, you know? Yeah. I, I try and set like an aspirational hourly rate. And if I look at something and I can outsource it for significantly below that hourly rate, worth it. I could tinker building my personal website for five hours. I'd rather just give it to someone who builds websites. The decision matrix, the, is it a, I know the, you had a couple filters on there. Is that a formal, is that just an informal process, like a habit you've built into doing things now? Or is there, is there a spreadsheet somewhere that you are, are running any, anything of, of importance through this, this matrix? Yeah, it's literally a matrix that I have right here. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I actually have it I actually have it taped on my monitor because as you know Ray, I have a decent social media following and so I get a lot of messages every day. And I'm a people pleaser by nature. And so when I get messages, I have to have a framework for being able to say no. And I promised myself that in 2021 saying no would be high in my priority list. And so I use a decision matrix, which I borrowed from a book, right? I didn't create my own. I just made it easier, right? I saw one I liked. I was like, that's a good starting point. I'll tinker with it over time. And then I went onto a website called Starter Story, and they have a great product that's just 31 templates on how to say no. And so I downloaded those, downloaded the plugin. And you know, every time someone asks me to do something that I don't want to do, I just use one of those templates and between that and the framework, it's I've vastly improved managing my time. Do you recall which book it was that you took the matrix that your your preference was? Yeah, it's actually just out of the four hour work week. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah, it was. I was reading it the other day. I read it like every once in a while. I thumb through it just to put my mind back into an interesting place and thinking through challenges differently. And it was the first time that I saw it, and I was like, "Oh, I've been looking for this." Like I've been needing something just like this. So I just literally cut it out of the book with a knife and pasted it to my monitor. 
That is awesome. I'd love that. It's probably due for a reread for me uh, now. I've, you know, probably number 10 or 11 times. So great book. You mentioned your, I, I appreciate your humility, but your, your social media following. Um, I mean, you have a, a big following and I'm really, I'm interested in your, your perspective on something that's been a conversation on our forum, on the, the Sales Leadership Foundations Forum. And it is, you know, so it's, it's primarily sales executives and the conversation that's, that's happening right now is the personal branding piece. You know, the personal branding as a, as a concept is obviously growing in popularity. I think it was accelerated, you know, when, when everybody went remote. There's, there's kind of this anxiety with a lot of sales managers, sales leaders, CEOs that are seeing their people on their team build brands that may not be affiliated with their company. And so you've been on both sides of this. I mean, you've, because you've helped me with, with my own LinkedIn stuff. Um, you have your LinkedIn playbook, so you know the, the personal branding and, and how to do this. I'm curious, and you've also been you know, in a CRO role. I mean, if you're leading a team today and you start seeing people on your sales team that are you know, building their own individual followings, and it may or may not be directly related to the company, to the company sales or company outcomes. What's your reaction to that uh, if you're in the sales leadership role? Yeah, I mean, I kind of have a pretty straightforward one, which, which is I believe in outcomes, not ours. And so I'll start by saying a few different things. Number one, when I was working at Patient Pop, I don't own my salespeople's social media accounts. They are their own personal social media accounts. I don't own their LinkedIn profile. I don't own their Facebook profile. And I don't own what they do really at all, obviously, but especially outside of traditional work hours. So if someone's on LinkedIn from 7.30 to 8.45 or from 5.15 to 9 o'clock at night, the gall that I would have to have to say that I somehow control that, to me, is I, I think that's just straight up wrong, number one. Number two, even if you're using it during work hours, I care about outcomes. So if you're delivering on your target and you're screwing around on LinkedIn, for lack of a better term, or Twitter during the day, I generally do not have a problem with that. I also believe that because I don't own those social media accounts, in no way, shape, or form are you obligated to have them be affiliated with the company that you work for. In fact, I take an opposite stance, which is if you build a brand based on the company that you work for, guess what's going to happen when you get fired? Your ex company is not going to come back and help you rebuild your brand. So you might as well build it for yourself. And if your company wants you to build it for them, then they can pay for the social media account and they can pay for any activity that you do on social media after hours. That's how I think about it. It's really good, good advice too. And if you were in a Say you're in a sales role today and, and you start doing that and somebody, you know, your manager or somebody brings it up to you. Is that a pretty big flag to you from a, from a culture standpoint or, or anything? No, not really. I, um, you know, I, it's easy for me to say what I just said because I was an executive and it's much easier for me to say, just go out and do your thing and don't worry about your company. So maybe that's not the best advice, but here's what I'd recommend if I were a salesperson, sales manager, is be transparent with your boss. I actually did that. In the beginning of my time at Patient Pop, I said, I want to build a brand. Like, this is something I want to do. And if I'm doing a good job, I, I hope that you guys support me in that. And they actually did. My CEO, Luke, got me onto the Sastra podcast with Harry Stebbings, 20 Minute VC podcast. Like, he helped me get on some pretty big things because I was doing a good job. And so we were making a trade off. I was performing, he was helping me build my brand. I think setting those expectations was really helpful, number one. Mm -hmm. 
But number two, like create a media company, right? Not to rip Gary Vee, but your employees are are spreading the word, even if it's not talking about your business. It's just getting eyeballs on your the name of your business, you know, the products that your business carries. Look at companies like Gravy, Gong, Outreach, who are leveraging their employees to create mini media companies inside of social media accounts. I think if you empower your team to do that, you're actually going to get much more bang for your buck. It's not going to be a distraction. Can a company orchestrate that? Is that intentional or is that organic? I don't think you can orchestrate it. So Gravy appears to have, like, I wouldn't call it a directive and I, I won't speak on their behalf because I don't know enough, but they appear to encourage, let's say that, their employees to be active on social media. But if I go and I look at Casey and Tara and the different people that work there, they all appear to have their own voice, their own way of saying things, their own style, their own topics. And so to me, the best way to do it is to allow all of your team to be authentic. Obviously, you don't want your team saying things that aren't nice or you know professional and, and all that stuff. So you want to make sure that there's some guardrails up. But to me, it's not orchestrated. To me, it's um, you know, it's it's an it's an authenticity play where everyone is being themselves and some people will resonate and others will not. Yeah. I mean, it's authenticity is key, whether you're doing it for just personal branding or even on behalf of the on behalf of the company. I think the thing, some of those companies that are doing it well, it's also they have leadership kind of showing the way too, like leading by example, not necessarily mandating it, but hey, this is what I do and this is how it, you know, this is how it benefits the company and and me as an individual. Um, and, and so seeing that example, I imagine is is helpful for, especially for at the CEO level. Yeah, I encourage guys like Jesse Gitler, Sam Lewis, Derek Jankowski, Kevin Dorsey, like they all worked for me. I encouraged them to go out and build their brand. And it did this really cool thing at Patient Pop where suddenly we had like four to six people that were starting to get some really good traction and our recruiting picked up. And we heard things from high performance recruits that were saying things like, oh, I want to work for Kevin Dorsey. You know, oh man, I want to be on Jesse Gitler's team. And so like, it was beneficial. You know, there was definitely benefit for our business. You've mentioned, I mean, you've, you've said solopreneur, you know, and, and I think earlier in the show too, and I've heard you, you talk about being a solopreneur. And I always think that's, a, that's the epitome of, you know, small business ownership because you're, you're the CEO, you're driving the strategy, and then in many cases, driving the, the tactical execution as well. And that can, I mean, I've, I have found it's, it can lend itself to you're just not objective necessarily about your own business. That's why you know outside help like coaches and, and consultants sometimes can help. How do you cultivate that that outside looking in into your own operation, uh, or or just kind of keep yourself from getting drawn too far into the into the the trees to see the forest? Yeah, I have a net, network of trusted peers that I lean on. You know, my wife obviously has a really good look at my business and she can see when I'm wasting time or when I'm going down a rabbit hole. She's really good at being, giving me like an outside perspective very objectively. But then I have like a small group of peers that I'll share ideas with. I'll share articles that I've written and say like, does this make sense? Like, is what I'm talking about resonating here? Does this, do you understand it reading through this? I just did that with my, my most recent blog post. I sent it to a couple of buddies of mine. They wrote back some really great feedback. So mostly I just cultivate this network of peers. And because I've been really active on social media, I've been able to grow that, that network pretty well, where I ask just very directly for, for direct feedback. 
And when they give it to me, it helps me make better business choices. It helps me write better. It helps me produce better. And so I also ask my customers. I carry a nice six to eight customers at, at a time. And every you know 90 days, I'll reach out and say, like, what's going well and what's going poorly with our relationship? And I take a lot of customer feedback into account when I'm you know, changing and molding my business model. And so from my wife, my peers, my customers, I tend to think I get a decent holistic view of, of what's going well and what's going poorly. And the network of, of trusted peers, was that something that you, did you formalize that with an ask? Or is it something that as you just develop a relationship and, and build some trust, it just, it just kind of evolves into that? So it's an interesting question. I feel like with everyone stuck at home and also trying to be more successful with my time management, as we talked about earlier, formalized sort of groups are starting to lose their luster. Joining more Slack groups, joining more communities, like joining these form- formal things feels like an obligation. So instead, what I do is I'm trying to do the reverse of what everyone else is doing. So for instance, if I'm making a business decision, and I want an objective opinion, rather than set up a meeting with someone and spend 30 minutes of their time or cultivate a group inside of a community software application, I just send a quick text message. And I'm like, hey, you have five minutes to look at this? And like, I just get ad hoc feedback all the time. It's less pressure on that person. It's less commitment on that person. It's less commitment for me. And it's the opposite of what everyone's doing right now. And so I like to feel like that gives people an easy way out to give me four minutes worth of feedback, which is not 30 minutes of their time on a Zoom call. I've always admired your, your execution. You know, everything is, it, you know, it's very deliberate, you know, from the outside looking in. But as a, you know, I've, I've heard you say just from our conversations, I'm certainly guilty of it. You know, we, we kind of joke about the shiny object syndrome. How do you cultivate the discipline on the execution side when you're an entrepreneur at heart and, and just by nature, chase good ideas. Yeah, it's interesting. I get I get distracted more by what I would call shiny outcome syndrome. So I'll give you an example of what I mean by that and then sort of how I think about it. I look at other creators online who I think are doing a great job. So I, there's a million creators that I think are doing a great job. And some of them are doing things much differently than me. Like a very common thing is a paid community. Do I think that I could host a paid community? I do. I think that people would sign up for a paid community. Other people are doing cohort-based coaching programs, an eight-week coaching program to lead someone to an outcome. Do I think I could do that? Again, I think I could. And I get really excited when I see those types of ideas, and I start to chase those ideas, recognizing that what I'm actually chasing is the outcome of what that person's looking for, more money, more dopamine, bigger performer on Twitter, more popular on LinkedIn. And I, I have to re retrain myself and step back and say, what is the actual outcome that I'm looking for? And the outcome that I'm looking for is not to make more money. It's not to be more popular. It's to enjoy my time more. And so whenever I'm making choices for my business, I say, is this going to free up my time? Is this going to allow me to work less? Is this going to allow me to spend more time with my wife? Is this going to do all the things that I want to do with an intentional life? Because if I don't think that way, I'll get sucked into an idea where suddenly I'm going to do an eight-week coaching program and I get really excited and really into it. And then I'm like, wait a minute, this is the opposite of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to spend less time working on things like this. And so for me, it's all about the outcome 
like not getting confused with what my outcome is. And my outcome is to live a better life, not to be richer or more popular. And if you, you combine that with what you were talking about earlier, you know, the tendency for to be, if you're a workaholic with some perfectionist tendencies, add in trying to do 72 things at once. It is an absolute recipe for, it's like a, it's like a time bomb. Yeah, man. I, I try and stick to real simple things that I enjoy. I like to write. So that's basically what I do, right? I write. Um, if I'm going to build a course, I like to time box it out to 14 or 30 days so that I don't spend a year trying to build it. That's just how I'm thinking about things. And I'm not competing with anyone. I don't want to be more popular than someone else. I don't want to be richer than someone else. I want to reach goals that I have internally with my, with my wife so that we can live a more relaxed and comfortable life. Mm, I love that. And where do you, I mean, as, as much content as you create, where do you find the creative spark? Is it when you're walking? Is it a, a specific place? Is it random? Where do, you, where do you tend to find it? It can be random, but there are generally times that are more creative than others. Walking is one of them. My wife and I go on a, now here in Tennessee, we go on a six mile walk each morning from like 8.30 to 10. And so we get a lot of creative ideas, both of us during our walks. And I like get a creative idea in the shower a lot. And so I have like a waterproof notepad that's in there. And so if I'm taking a shower and an idea pops to my head, I just jot it down on this waterproof notepad. If I see something online that sparks my interest that I might have an opposite take on or a different take on, you know, I just use things like pocket to save those things. Reading a book, right, might come across an idea that I think is interesting and that I want to expand on. And just really thinking about what happened to me each day at the end of the day, like, What's something that I learned today that I think would be useful to teach people or to share with people? And so there's all these different places. And you know, one thing that's been really helpful to me, Ray, is I I like to share strong opinions, things that I feel pretty strongly about. And so I just keep a list, strong opinions that I have. And every once in a while, I just revisit it and I look and say, do I have anything extra to add about these opinions that could be helpful to someone? When you do the reflection at the end of the day, is that a like a formal journaling process or just a, a thought exercise that you just as a habit work through? Yeah, it's more of a thought exercise. It's more of like I'll sit at the end of the day and then say, okay, what happened today? Sometimes nothing. Sometimes nothing interesting happens during the day, or I just don't remember, uh, you know, to make a note of it. But if I think about something interesting, I do it as simple as emailing myself. I don't get into Notion or Roam Research or all these tools. Like I'm not a productivity fiend. I'm an action fiend. So to me, it's just the least barrier to entry for remembering my idea, which is I just fire off an email to myself. That's it. Going back to what you said about watching, you know, some other creators that are doing it differently than others. And you're you're one of those for me. Like when I when I watch the way that you're doing things, it's you know, it's it's always a little bit different than than what other people are doing. Who are the creators that you tend to to follow most, or are there a few that you you'd recommend for for others that want to that want to see people doing it doing it differently? Yeah, I I like a lot of folks on Twitter. I spend so much time on LinkedIn engaging with my audience that when I'm done, I generally jump over to Twitter and spend time. And I think that um, guys like Daniel Vasallo um, do a really great job on on Twitter. He's um he's someone who g- kind of got me thinking about designing my life in a better way. He was someone whose ideas and takes on life started to get my mind churning a little bit. And so I, I want to give him credit for that. I like Jack Butcher. 
He's a, a graphic designer um, who breaks down really complex ideas using simple graphic design. He's on Twitter. He's excellent. He's got like 100,000 followers, great courses. David Perel is a really good writer. He's someone who just writes really effectively and teaches people how to write effectively. I think, especially given his experience, he's a, an incredibly good writer. I like James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits. He's got a great Twitter Twitter handle and shares a lot of really good advice. And so those are four people that I tend to... Oh, and I like Amanda Getz from House of Wise. I think she's really good. She's a kind of a entrepreneur selling luxury CBD online. And she transitioned out of like the tech world into owning her own business. And I think she's got a cool story that she tells. And so, uh, yeah, those are like five people I, I like to pay attention to. So you, you spend the time and I, you know, I engage on LinkedIn too. So I know how much time I'm, I'm on it. And then when you hop over to Twitter, do you tend to, do you time box that? Like, do you, do you know, Hey, at, at this point, how do you, how do you not get sucked into to social media all day when you work in social media? Yeah. So I post every morning at 7.15 Central on LinkedIn, and I've committed to engaging with the audience for an hour, almost exactly. And so if you make a comment at 8.20, you probably won't get a reply because I do it for an hour. I close my computer screen, then we go on our walk. That's my, my morning routine. When I come back, I don't have a real rigid sort of structure for using Twitter or LinkedIn. I might revisit my LinkedIn post later in the afternoon just to, you know, comment back to someone who left something thoughtful. But to me, Twitter is just like a, it's a break in between client calls. It's looking for unique and interesting information. It's looking to see the folks that I follow, what they've posted that day. But I probably need to do a better job of spending less time on it, I think, as a lot of us get sucked into it during COVID. I I think one thing my wife and I are working on is just committing to shutting our computers down at five o'clock. And we're not very good at that. And so we're trying to get better at that. Yeah, I know sometimes it's, it's easier said than done. I get that. This may be the last question here on the, you built this course in public. And again, I, I think it's, a, it's something that I haven't seen somebody do. So it's, you know, it's a creator doing something uh, that, that other people aren't. And so I've, uh, I've enjoyed watching it. What's, can you tell, I guess, for the, for the listeners, what is, what is the course? And then what are the one or two takeaways from, from doing that in public? Yeah. Um, the course is called Idea Audience Proof Product. And it's really just a side hustle playbook. It's how to ideate, grow your audience, prove your expertise, and then build a digital product that can sell and scale 24-7. And I decided to build in public because I think that part of the reason that my audience likes my content is that I tend to be pretty transparent. I'm not trying to pretend that I'm smarter or more interesting than I really am. I'm just trying to share what I'm doing on a regular basis. And that seems to resonate. So I thought to myself, a lot of people ask me how to build courses. So the easiest way to answer that question is to just build it right in front of them and allow them to see all the ups and downs, wins and losses, good choices, bad choices, how much money I'm making, how many hours I'm spending. And at the end of that journey, they can make a decision. Do they want to do that themselves? It's not as easy as it looks. Spent over a hundred, I think I spent 90 to a hundred hours building that course. You know, it's been a really profitable, good course. But I thought that like unveiling the curtain would do two things teach them how to do it on their own and be a really good partner for the course, right? And then also maybe build a closer relationship with my audience. I think one thing I hate is when creators are really closed off where you can't really access them. They feel like people who are 
you don't exist, right? They kind of up on a pedestal. And I just don't want to be that person. I'd rather be much more accessible, much more open. When I say no to things now, one thing I feel good about is that I've produced a lot of stuff in the world that you can go and read. If you have a question for me and I can't spend the time answering it, it's likely been answered somewhere in what I've created. And so I just point people in those directions, knowing that hopefully I've done a good job in answering most of their questions. And what you end up with, I mean, is a more loyal following. I mean, you have have more authentic relationships, you engage your audience, they actually get to know you better, they become more loyal and and even bigger fans, the the more authentic you are. And it's a virtuous cycle with, with your audience. I appreciate you coming on the the show. Uh, I appreciate your time, and I mean, as you know, I'm a I'm a fan of the content, and I know that as a as a person, you're you know authentic, and and so I yeah I'm, I'm glad to have you on and, and appreciate your time. Where can people find you? Yeah, people can find me in a couple different places. If they're interested in what I'm writing and creating, they can go to justinwelsh.me. That's just w e l s h dot me, justinwelsh.me. Or if they're a, you know, an early stage SaaS founder and they want to you know, work with me as an advisor or a coach, they can go to jwadvisory.co. Excellent. We will uh, we'll send them that way. And uh, thanks for your time again. Ray, good to see you as always, man. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Thanks again for listening today. If you liked what you heard, please be sure to rate and review the podcast. It does help us out a lot. For more information about me or our business, Ray J. Green and Company, check out www.rayjgreen.com. And if you're in a role of leading sales improvement at the CEO level, as a business owner, or in a sales leadership position, you can apply to join our Sales Leadership Foundations community, plus get access to content and events that I don't share anywhere else. Again, rayjgreen.com. Thanks again for listening. Adios.